0: Hello, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm Lawrence Kraus. I want to be straight up and say that Elizabeth Loftus is a hero of mine. First, she's a distinguished cognitive psychologist, a member of the National Academy and the American Philosophical Society, and she's been president of the American Psychological Society as well. She serves as a distinguished professor of psychology, law, cognitive science, criminology, and law and society at UC Irvine. She holds these distinctions because of her groundbreaking work on false memories, implanted memories, and on eyewitness testimony and the misinformation involved, the so-called Loftus effect. She's a hero of mine not just because she's discovered all of this, but because she's applied it and has devoted much of her life, often at great risk to her own well-being, subjecting herself to personal and professional attacks, by interfacing with the court system, advising judges and juries, and serving as an expert witness, saving people's lives who've been falsely accused. She's been involved in many high-profile cases from the McMartin preschool to OJ Simpson, Ted Bundy, and the Duke versus lacrosse team. I wanted to talk to her personally about what got her interested in psychology and what caused her to reach beyond academia. Also about what we know about memory today and what we've learned about eyewitness testimony, reflecting on the recent events, for example, in the Supreme Court and elsewhere. Our discussion was interesting and highly relevant to what's going on today. As always, Patreon subscribers can find the full video of this program immediately at patreon.com slash Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Elizabeth, I'm so happy you're here today uh, with me. Uh, we go back a ways, and I've always admired your work tremendously. and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation about memory, about your experiences, and uh, things that are happening in the world. so let let me let's begin. I, I never asked you this question. But why psychology? Why did you get involved in psychology? What interested you in it in the first place? Why did you choose that?
1: Oh, psychology. Well, First of all, when I started college, I was a math major, and um, good choice. <laughs> well, I, I, I was—I loved algebra. I loved geometry. When I got to calculus, um, I didn't really love calculus too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was a math major, and I was going to stick to this because uh-huh. I put so many years into it. But I—you have to take electives, yeah. yeah. And I took introductory psychology from a professor at UCLA, Alan Parducci, and. It was fabulous, so I was kind of hooked on psychology. Took a bunch of other courses in psychology, and by the time I graduated, I had enough hmm. psychology to have a double major
0: in math and psychology. In
1: math and psychology.
0: Huh. Now it's it's interesting that because usually those psychology courses at universities are immense. They're usually the kind of things I would think that would turn people off. Was it a huge class? Was it Oh yeah. But it but it's still but it was good to have a good teacher. It makes a big difference, I uh, guess.
1: Fabulous. Yes.
0: And then okay, so you had to double major and then what?
1: Well, then um for a while I thought maybe I might become a teacher, mm-hmm. like a high school teacher yeah. and teach mathematics, but uh one of my professors said, "You know, there's this program at Stanford, Mathematical Psychology." And I thought, well, how perfect. Uh, yeah. That's my math and my psych. I think I'll go do that. And I got into Stanford uh, to go to graduate mm. school in mathematical psychology. And I really didn't like it very much. I I, I used to go to the Friday seminars mm-hmm. at Stanford, the mm-hmm. math psych seminars, yeah. where the faculty and grad students would yeah. present their yeah. latest model of uh, behavior. Yeah. And I would uh, write letters to my Uncle Joe <laughs> I would hem my skirts because the, the skirt lengths were going up and down. And uh, even the other grad students took a poll, and I was voted uh, the least likely to succeed because <laughs> I was so not into it. And, uh, I mean, I did okay in the courses, yeah, but, and I passed the courses. But you weren't
0: excited. But you I, did some research, right? You, did, you were doing, You were working actually on your—as I— <laughs> remember from reading some things you wrote that you were actually working on a phd project still in mathematical psychology Were you?
1: well my my master's thesis advisor and phd advisor mm. they were mathematical mm-hmm. people but yeah. they also were interested in computer assisted instruction so i was working on their computer assisted instruction pro projects yeah okay and then i did a side project with one of my professors he said you know you're you're interested in... You're a cognitive person. Um, I'm doing these memory studies. Would you like to help me?
0: When he's, how did he know you were a cognitive person? Uh,
1: well, I think we didn't even call... Learning, it was yeah. called back then. And but so you,
0: you were interested in learning?
1: Uh, yeah, learning. Because
0: you thought of being a teacher. Was there any relationship? Was that why you were interested in learning or no? No,
1: it, that was the subfield of okay. psychology, as it was called then. And it became cognitive psychology about the time I was mm-hmm. uh, graduating. And so I started doing some memory studies, but very different studies than the ones I would do after I got my Ph.D. and, and continue on with.
0: Let me, as an aside, let me ask that question, because people often ask me this. I, 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 as a physicist, I think I learned more about physics after I got my Ph.D. than before. I'm just wondering, in your case, whether it was similar, that you found that you discovered, or you, did you f- get most of the basics and then it was just applying them
1: no i i mean the basics i got were how to how to be an experimental psychologist how to how to design a study how to run the subjects how to do the statistical analyses how to write up a manuscript i learned how to do that in grad school
0: did they have human did they have those human subject things back then too where that was a big
1: uh they they and I think they came later. The, where you have yeah. to go through human subjects yeah. committees, get yeah. approvals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they really came later.
0: And so, okay, so you so this so this fellow asked you if you wanted to work on a memory on this project on memory, right? And yeah. that, Did you have a Did you have an interest in memory before that, or, or was it just then that you began I to think, think about it? I think
1: it was really then. But this was what's called semantic memory, okay. our memory for words and concepts and the knowledge we have about about the world rather than our personal experiences. Okay. So I, I did studies of semantic memory. And, uh, uh, like, give me the name of an animal that starts with the letter Z. Okay, go for I, it.
0: I'll just say zebra but just for fun. I bet everyone says that.
1: Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a common one. Is there and,
0: another animal that starts with Z? Well, <laughs> but,
1: I uh, uh, you know, a bird that's yellow. Yeah, okay. um,
0: and I think I, even though I'm colorblind, I'd say canary. Canaries <laughs> are yellow, aren't they?
1: Yeah, uh, many. Okay. Yeah, so that would work, and and so oh,
0: the one from Big, from uh, Sesame Street. That, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Big Bird. Okay. Okay. Anyway, sorry.
1: Well, so I I measured reaction times and I mm. drew inferences about the structure of of that kind of knowledge in the human mind. That's what I did with Doctor Friedman.
0: And then, and that's what you eventually got your PhD in.
1: Uh, no, I, I did st- on the computer assisted so, instruction. Oh, I, this was a side project. Oh, I so see. I was publishing articles with him at the same time as I was publishing with my main advisors. Mm. But on, that
0: was where your passion was.
1: Uh, well, I got more excited about it because I was in control. You know, working on these computer-assisted instruction projects, I felt like I was a little, you know, in an assembly line. I was mm-hmm. chopping the carrots and somebody else the peas, and yeah. somebody else was going to throw it together.
0: The whole picture wasn't there. It,
1: it, no, but but through the the memory studies, I realized I, I could be an experimental psychologist.
0: You could control it. It's funny, again, I'm just trying, as a as a non by the way I, I i was a subscriber from the time i was 12 to psychology today i, I thought cuz i mm-hmm. wanted to do that when i was younger so now you know i became a physicist and and it's interesting to see the differences and there's sort of similar things like that in physics and where you be part of a big experiment big experimental collaboration a particle physics experiment where you're doing this little cog here and that and 10,000 people are doing other other things and then there're physicists who want to be doing Tabletop experiments where they can sort of control the whole thing, and I guess that there's a sort of similar difference for, mm-hmm. and that's what excited you to be to sort of start to finish to be involved in the project. Exactly. Okay, so what? It, so so, but that intri- that started you to get interested in memory. Yes. And then, and then what? Why do
1: you? Uh, well, then um, this work on you know animals zebras. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact, I once wrote a paper called "How to Catch a Zebra in Semantic Memory," and, you know that. But but it was just about that stuff, and and it got me jobs. You know, I I I talked about this stuff and got a job offer from Harvard as an assistant professor, which I turned down to for other complicated well, reasons. It's not but,
0: a bad idea, at least in my yeah. For reasons <laughs> i I know why. many people have done that and been quite happy. Okay, but.
1: <laughs> But so it, it was, uh, you know, I was having uh, some success with this yeah. work. But I then one day, I was teaching in New York at the time. I, yeah. um, I had lunch with a cousin. She was a lawyer. And, oh, you're an experimental psychologist. Well, ha- have you made any discoveries? I said, yes, I have. Well, give me one. I said, well, I discovered that people are faster to give you the name of a bird that's yellow than to give you the name of a yellow bird, and they're 250 milliseconds faster, about a quarter of a second. And uh, she said, uh, "Oh, really? And how how much did we pay for that result?" And uh, and it was that conversation that made me think, you know, I would love to work on problems that had more obvious practical relevance.
0: Okay. I I wanted to get to that because, and and we'll get to that because of course in your career, you have moved in that way in the extreme, many more, much more than most of your colleagues, your work and your life has become involved in the, in the uh, intertwined immeasurably in real events and real events that most people have heard of. And, and we'll get to that, but that, but you already had a predilection in having sort of practical impact in your work.
1: Right. Right. Uh,
0: Now, I want to. I want to. I know that at some point, I think you wrote that 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 your work, in some sense, involved a new paradigm of what memory was. So, as you began to evolve, you actually began to think about or change ideas about what memory was. So maybe you can describe in what sense it was a new paradigm. Well,
1: well, one of the things that was happening in the field of learning and memory at the time Mm -hmm. is that. People were working with very simple stimuli. They they would have people memorize a list of words and try to—or learn a list of yeah. words and try to remember them after different periods of time. Every now and then, um, they use stimuli that maybe were a little different, but they were— very simple, sometimes nonsense syllables. They were trying to have them be as simple as possible. And when I started my ex- my experiments, I wanted them to m- more closely match the real world. So I started showing people f- films of acc- auto accidents, yeah. and those were my stimuli. And other p- scientists were not doing we're work at, that way. So in, in, in that sense... That was a little different.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Uh,
1: but the parent... but, but the. Am so- I
0: correct that in that? By the way, in those experiments, you could get people to just to get, and maybe it's a a precursor to what would happen later. Was it in those experiments where you could get people to infer how fast someone was going by describing? an auto accident in different in different terms.
1: well, you yeah, we are asking a question that uses a loaded word for yeah. how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other uh versus how fast were the cars going when they hit each other. And and we showed that People said the cars were going faster with smash than hit.
0: So it was already an early indication that you could influence what, what people thought, by the way, by by just giving them loaded words.
1: Yes, but my first thought was I was looking at leading questions, and okay. I could see that the leading questions would affect the answer. Um, then I showed that those leading questions could affect the answers to totally different questions that you put to a person, often much later. So if I came back to you after I'd asked you the smash question Uh a week later and say, by the way, a few more questions for you. Did you see any broken glass? People were twice as likely to say, yes, I saw broken glass. There wasn't any Uh if we had used the word smash smash versus hit. So then I began to see these leading questions as just a vehicle for supplying Suggestive information to people that would affect their memory. And and that ultimately would lead to the label uh, of the misinformation effect. You, uh, You supply people with misinformation and they will often accept it, absorb it into their memory, it causes a contamination or a distortion of memory. I think I've
0: heard that called the Loftus effect, actually, from other people. <laughs> well, I, I, I called it the misinformation <laughs> effect,
1: but, you know, and that was... Yes, but in, I, in yes. any case, as yeah.
0: a side. Well, it, 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 because it's a very... It, it, the notion for many, many years was quite different about what memory was, uh, you know, going back to ancient times where people thought you sort of memories and knowledge were was intrinsic, And you were just somehow probing what was already there and then, and never sort of creating memories or memories as dynamic. And and then the idea that memories were like tape recorders where they weren't already there, but once they happened, they were in your mind. And it was a matter of just going to the right data location and calling them out and, and what you began to show. And have showed, of course, abundantly since then, is that that's not the case at all. That that memories are not static, and 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 maybe didn't weren't even there in the first place.
1: Well, yes, I mean, and that tape recorder, video recorder, you know, model of memory, is still sadly uh, widely embraced by le- some lay people. Yeah, I think uh, most
0: people still think memories. You work hard, you get the memory, and and that's it. And if it's there, yeah. if it's a memory, it must have been. It must have happened. Right. Memory studies as you said had been sort of uh trying to remember the name of a of an animal named Z, w- with a letter Z or or a series of numbers or facts and and you you began to your research has involved more stories. Right. What, do, why do you think you, you were thinking stories versus facts in that sense? What what influenced you to think in those terms? Is it because you were so interested in the way people really work in the real world of, of trying to remember their own stories or what, what, what caused you to go in that direction? Uh,
1: well, I, I, I think I know actually. Well, good. I, okay. You think, I think you
0: know, no one told yeah, you this. No, okay. I, th- I think
1: I actually know. Okay. Uh, so there I was, you know, thinking to myself after that conversation with my lawyer cousin yeah. where, um, I, I thought I want to do something that has some practical applicability, something that's more socially relevant. Um, and for, briefly, at, around that time, my father had was dying of cancer. Oh. And I wished I could work on cancer, but mm-hmm. I couldn't work on cancer because I don't know anything about <laughs> it. I wasn't I had no mm-hmm. skills. Uh-huh. Um, so, but what could I work on that I could be excited about? Well, and then to find out what what excited me, I asked myself, "Well, what is it you like to talk about when you're, let's say, at a party, a dinner party, or something, and you can talk about whatever you want?" Um what do you talk about? And I found myself often talking about legal situations, legal cases. So this made me think, ah. okay, I want to like maybe combine memory with with legal cases. Well, how about eyewitness memory, accidents, crimes, things like that. That's how I got there. So
0: uh, uh, interesting. And do you think it was because of your lawyer cousin or what what caused you to be interested no, in No, I
1: just I just
0: Perry Mason or something. Uh, it?
1: no, it's not um uh, so I remember, you know, one dinner party, okay, here's something that happened in New York. Somebody goes out to his car and a kind of a hoodlum is mm-hmm. resting on the car and mm-hmm. owner says, you know, do you think I could get into my car? And the hoodlum starts to annoy him and there ends up being a tussle and the hoodlum dies and, mm-hmm. and the owner ends up getting prosecuted. And Mm. I, and I thought to myself, well, what's somebody supposed to do if they're getting hassled like that? Uh, what was, what was the fair thing to happen? Why is he being prosecuted when he was just defending himself? And so that's That's what I was talking about.
0: You had a personal event in your life very young where that happened. You did, did that impact I don't know if you want to talk about it. You don't have to, if you don't want to.
1: No, I, I know what you're referring to because, um, I was being interviewed by a reporter, and this experience had just happened to me. And I told this reporter about the experience because it was so amazing to me. Um, That would have been in the 90s. So Mm -hmm. that would have been, you know, decades, you know, Mm -hmm. almost a couple of decades after after I started this work. So what happened to me that— that was so amazing that I told this journalist. It was a Chronicle of Higher Education okay. uh, writer, as oh, a matter of fact. Okay. Um, my mother did drown when I was fourteen, and now jump ahead. I'm an adult. I've been working on memory for mm. fifteen years or more. Uh, when I went to a ninetieth birthday party for an un- for an uncle of mine, Uncle Joe, uh, and at this birthday party, a relative made reference to my mother's death from decades and decades mm-hmm. before and said, you know, you were the one who found the body. I said, no, I in, in lying in the swimming pool. Yeah. And I said, no, I didn't. Her sister did, my aunt. Uh-huh. Oh, no, you're the one who found it. And this relative was so positive, older relative. Uh-huh. And it had been so long. I started thinking, wow, maybe I did. And then I started picturing her in the swimming pool face down Mm -hmm. and and i started to believe and remember this and i started to draw inferences that were consistent with my having found it Mm -hmm. uh i remembered that when the firemen came to the place that they gave me oxygen well maybe they gave me oxygen because i was so upset because i'm the one who found the body and and so now i had this memory a week later, the relative called and said, "I'm so sorry, I made a mistake. It wasn't you, it was <laughs> wow. it was your aunt who found wow. the body." And I thought, "Boy, that's what it feels like." That that's it's what... really
0: interesting when you have that personal experience of exactly what you're oh. working on.
1: Oh, oh yeah. It was so incredible. It was eerie. By the way, I I once finally had the experience of sleep paralysis, oh. uh, which was amazing. So now I can understand these people with these alien abduction yeah, memories, we'll get to, how they yeah. get started. But anyhow. Yeah, we'll
0: get to alien abductions because yeah. I wanted to ask about it. I didn't read it, but I've I've spent a lot of time over, undue time over the years, sort of in the early days, debating alien abduction people. And and uh, and we'll get to that. Okay, so, so we'll we, talk
1: about John Mac and, y- yeah, and yeah, those guys. You yeah. yeah, okay, which, and, and
0: that whole issue, which yeah. we, which I hadn't seen you talk about, but it certainly seemed relevant to to. to but but let's actually okay. step back for okay. those who 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 aren't as familiar with the amazing impact and career and real world application of of your work, which you're in at least in my circles famous for it, certainly and and uh, and rightly so and that's the the work you've done on on recognizing that memories can be implanted that eyewitness testimony may not be or often isn't accurate and is influenced by the way in which it's presented did you seek out lawyers to help them or did they seek you out how when did it happen and
1: well a very clear path mm-hmm. um So I'd been doing this experimental work, showing people these simulated uh, accidents and sometimes later uh, crime simulations. I was studying laboratory witnesses, and I thought to myself, you know, I would like to see some real witnesses in in real cases out there in the real world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at this time, I had moved to the University of Washington, where I knew one of the chief uh, attorneys in the public defender's office, ah. Phil Ginsburg. So I, I said, Phil, how about I study eyewitness memory? How about if I consult on a case with you for free? If you let me just hang out and watch the progression oh. of a witness uh, through a case and so on. So he was working on a case. A woman was accused of um, uh, murdering her her boyfriend, and the whole issue was it self defense or was it murder. Uh, And I hung out with him during this case, giving my little input, absorbing the experience for for my own benefit as well. And when the woman, she was acquitted, uh, so it was found to be self-defense. There were memory issues, which I explained to the attorney. And so maybe I played a tiny role in Mm -hmm. this case. When I was done... With that experience, I decided to write an article for Psychology Today magazine. Mm. And I wrote about some of the early studies. I wrote about the experience with that case, that woman, her acquittal, and how psychological memory science could intersect with the legal field and maybe make a difference. And that's when the phone started ring. ringing. So a l- lawyer said, would you help me with my case? Would you lecture about this to my group? Uh, and I started doing lectures to groups mm-hmm. of attorneys. I started being asked to consult on court cases, and that's how it started.
0: Then that's your life changed that way. Like, uh, completely. Of course, people ask me about this because, you know, I've had a variety of trajectories and tried to juggle them in my life with my research and writing and, 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 and communicating, and and they ask, you know, is it, is it taken away? Is one taken away from the other? And, you know, are you happy you've done this? And, of course, it's hard to know about trajectories that were never taken right? Um, in the future, much less the past. Having said that, that did change your life. I assume it changed your life in a way that ultimately you were happy with
1: well, I, I would say I'm mostly happy. I mean, most, you know, I, I have.
0: It's brought a lot of struggle and strife to your uh, life, as right?
1: Well. I've had some really difficult times because of people who don't like what I do. Yeah. But the benefits are I, you know, I get to see these <laughs> real world cases, I get to live these stories. You know, it's true crime up close and personal. Uh, it's it can be lucrative. Yeah, and, no, I mean
0: it's interesting for as a lesson for the academics who may be listening. That real world article, that Psychology Day article, changed everything. It brought a whole you into a whole different set of interactions and opportunities that you never would have had otherwise. I found some similar things that when I my first time I spoke publicly or wrote anything, one thing leads to another, and I think it depends on your personal election for some people they say oh gee whiz I, I didn't mean for that to happen but if you're at all in tune with that if you're at all interested it's a wonderful way as an academic to have an impact beyond your normal sphere and to also realize that people are fascinated not just the applicant in your case unlike sort of cosmology where I, I'm I've never been asked to go at a court case in cosmology uh, directly. But but mm-hmm. so it's not that relevant to human affairs in that sense. But people are still fascinated by by what's going on and what you're learning in the laboratory. And I don't think people realize how much the public would like to know directly, and what a great opportunity it is to reach out and like you did in that article. And then and then of course there are lots of people who could, in your case, use your use your expertise. And that launched you into a, as you say, it changed your life.
1: It did. And the magazine back then was exceedingly popular and it was read not just by psychology people but um I told you it was the the first the scientific American kind of crowd. And lawyers.
0: Yeah, well and even lawyers read it. That's then well if you reach the lawyers you reach everyone. But I it was the first magazine I ever subscribed to at age thirteen. I had I still I was just looking when I was moving uh recently and I found the first three issues of psychology today that I still have. Which are maybe worth something. But, okay. but I I I was it was fascinating. They had little experiments in them, little they were wonderful. They had little viewers and it was three-dimensional viewing and all sorts of neat stuff. So <laughs> that had that reached people and that made an impact. Um, there was this period which for young people they may not remember, but if you're old enough, where where children were accusing their parents of crime satanic rituals that had happened 30 years earlier, and it seemed to be happening all the time. And and I, you played an essential role in, in to my recollection, and in, in helping save many people's lives as a result. Do you want to talk about that at all? Because I think it's profoundly important.
1: Okay. Well, so there's a, you, you took a leap a, yeah, ahead yeah. of uh, a few years. But, yeah. So so we'll go back. Uh, okay. Well, there I was. I was now I was studying, what happens when you expose people to leading questions and other forms of misinformation? How does that get incorporated into a person's memory and change their memory for the details of an event that actually did happen. Yeah, yeah. They did see a, a, a crime scene. They did see a accident. And now we've made them believe that the car went through a yield sign yeah. instead of a stop sign or that the, the bad guy had curly hair instead of straight mm-hmm. hair, changing a detail. Uh, lo- lots of court cases where eyewitness memory was disputed and an issue um, many cases where the wrong person was identified as being the perpetrator when, uh, when he really wasn't. And along came this really, really strange case. It was around 1990, where, uh, in fact, I remember getting the call from the defense attorney. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm representing a guy accused of murder, and the only evidence against him is the claim of his daughter, Eileen, defendant's name was george franklin so eileen was accusing her father saying that she was like in her late 20s that 20 years Mm. earlier she'd seen her father kill her little eight-year-old best friend uh and she repressed her memory into the unconscious and now through some process the memory was back she said she repressed her memory of you know even other murders she repressed her memory of continual rapes by the father and sexual assaults by other people. So the attorney who said, who who was a very experienced San Francisco <laughs> attorney, said, w- w- what do you know about this idea of repression? I said, well, you know, it's kind of this hand-me-down Freudian idea that we banish all yeah. this excessive trauma into the unconscious. It's walled <laughs> off. Yeah. We have no access to it. Um, but then we can go into therapy or something and become aware of it and reliably recover it all. But when I started to look for the evidence, it was amazing. There was no credible <laughs> scientific support for this idea. And and I explained that to this attorney, but uh, this daughter was so convincing. Mm-hmm. And she had the support of a psychiatrist who basically blessed her memory and said, that's how mm-hmm. it works, and this mm-hmm. is you can count on it in so many words. And George Franklin was convicted. So here you have the first American citizen virtually convicted based on a claim of repressed and recovered memory. But what would be happening here if this memory weren't real? And I certainly suspected that it wasn't and that her memory had all these details could be found in Mm -hmm. the public domain from this high, Mm -hmm. high publicity case where could that come from? How could such a, a rich, deep, complete thing be created in her mind, assuming she wasn't deliberately lying, mm-hmm. if it didn't happen? Mm-hmm. I wanted to study that. And so that's what led me into a whole kind of new line of work where we're going to plant a, a seed of memory and watch it grow into something big. And I began to do those studies starting in the mid-90s and, and to this day,
0: so that was the famous case, the Franklin case. And yes. eventually he he was relieved after six years. No,
1: yeah, a good mm-hmm. good memory. Yeah, well, he 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 was convicted. I mu- and, you
0: must have imputed that, and, and it, <laughs> it was
1: upheld by the next level in California and the next level. But when it got into the federal, a federal judge eventually overturned his conviction.
0: But that, but then in the newspapers, one then started to hear about a wave of not just this, but the weirdest. I mean, that was one, as you say that. Young woman had memories of him murdering and raping, and we went. But then there were even wilder ones of satanic rituals and rapes and murders, and and it just seemed to be everywhere. Do you want to comment? I mean, <laughs> that thing doesn't happen accidentally. It seems to me, and I, and I'm wondering the social context of, of globally, if people read about that, whether you think it maybe affects them you know one person feeds off another and it becomes like a chain reaction or
1: why what happened yeah, yeah. well i it's a good question for a sociologist but yeah. i'll give you my my okay. my non my lay uh <laughs> thoughts yeah okay um Yes. After the Franklin case, then we saw following year, celebrities came forward to say, I repressed my memory of horrific sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. The actress Roseanne said that Mm -hmm. she repressed her memory of her mother molesting her when she was six months Mm -hmm. old. I mean, that was jarring to me because I know about childhood amnesia. We don't have concrete, reliable memories for things that Mm -hmm. happen in the first couple of years of of life. Sure. and and then she accused her father of joining in later. So after the celebrities, we start to see lots of non-celebrities coming forward and accusing their parents of all kinds of things, or their former neighbors or teachers, doctors, yeah. whoever. They were it it was members of of the mental health profession that were fueling these ideas. They had this repression theory mm-hmm. or or what a Harvard psychologist calls folklore and they were communicating it they were communicating it in continuing education seminars they were communicating it to their patients
0: wasn't you, there a book also i don't know if it was a psychologist <clears throat> someone who basically said if you think you, if you feel like you're abused you're abused and it, it, even if you don't have the memory i, I forget the name of that, that book
1: the courage to heal was y- the book y- and y- y- yes and it was a very popular book Um, At at one point, USA Today said it was the best-selling self-help psychology book uh, out there, Um, and it it, uh, promoted this repression theory. Um, Then, you know, these North American psychiatrists and other mental health professionals who were fostering these beliefs would get invited to Europe and other—Australia, New Zealand, other parts of the world, and so— the infection spread to uh, uh, around the world. I
0: often say that the United States sort of exports everything good and bad, and 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 it happens.
1: This was one of those, you know, not so good things. Yeah. So uh, there were thousands of these cases.
0: And then they stopped. I mean, you, but you played a big role, at least in my mem- memory of it, and I don't think it's a false memory.
1: Well, I, I did work on a lot yeah. of these cases. Um, And then they took a slightly different—so mostly these were civil cases uh, uh, where a daughter was, say, suing her parents or her other relatives or former neighbors or whatever, um, based on these claims of repressed and recovered memories. Lots of these court cases. At some point, this was a fascinating development. Some of these patients who had developed these rich— Mm-hmm. things that felt like memories, started to realize their memories were false. Oh, They, they call themselves retractors. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. How does that happen? Yeah. How does that happen? I mean, as a memory scientist, I mean, this is fascinating to me. Sometimes their insurance ran out so they uh-huh. could no longer pay for the therapy that was propping up this <laughs> uh, uh-huh. belief system. But then these retractors many of them started suing their former therapists for planting false memories. And those were just regular medical malpractice lawsuits, nothing Mm -hmm. tricky about them, and many multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements.
0: And then the therapists became a little more careful before they started... Right. Oh, interesting.
1: And then they really became careful when we saw the third-party lawsuits where the father... Sues the therapist for planting false memories in the mind of his daughter.
0: So, okay, so it's interesting that that the the, the backlash, in some sense, occurs when people realize them for one reason or other that they recognize them. It's not you can't you can. It's very hard to convince someone that they're wrong. They have to convince themselves. I have found that in, in science in general. And that's why it's so good <laughs> in physics because you can. People often have have misconceptions and you just ask them to follow them through to the logical end and they realize it's ridiculous. But in this case, it was a matter of just being taken away from that constant reinforcement of that false memory to realize that doesn't make sense. Well,
1: that's one route. Yeah, That's one route. But yes.
0: Do you you think, I was wondering, I don't know about the timing of this. So Rosemary's Baby came out and was it around the same time? I've often wondered, I mean, life follows art for a variety of reasons but rosemary's baby was a movie exactly about that right about satanic rituals and infants and and things going on that she wasn't quite aware of and and i'm wondering if that movie had an impact on do you you, have you ever thought about that i
1: i hadn't really thought about that i i I don't remember it coming up in a lot of (laughs) Uh, you know, because I read a lot of medical records, therapy notes, and Mm -hmm. I could see what the patient and the therapist were talking about. And I don't remember a lot of, gee, I just went to the movies. Well, they may not. uh, I'm just wondering if,
0: but, you know, when things are, when things are popular, and I mean, that's why I actually wanted to go into the alien thing, because, you know, there was this, another wave of repressed memories or or invented memories, uh, induced again by psychologists often, of, of alien abduction. Yes. And, um. And then at, when there's one person, there suddenly seems to be many, and they all have similar stories. And one can't help but think what's what's bubbling in the background of society, whether it's from a movie or from a popular book, ends up also, even if it isn't implanted by a individual like a therapist, but implanted by society, that yeah. people can change their memories.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, you're calling to my mind the... Uh the exorcist. Yeah. The exorcist did lead to a whole bunch of people starting to think that they were p- possessed by the mm-hmm. devil and they started displaying some of those symptoms and
0: well and but also you know what's interesting to me is people often say well you know if it was just one person I wouldn't believe it but there's so many people that are independently coming up with the same thing therefore it must be believable. But there's that sense of independence is a fallacy. It isn't there because everyone's subject to the same news. For example, when people report on what the aliens that abducted them look like, they all look the same. Yes. Now it's there's two possibilities for that. One, they're really there, or is it amazing that they all look like aliens that were shown on the cover of a magazine at one point? Mm-hmm. And and so those things must. It, it, must have an impact and and you can't and therefore when when you see that many people are 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 saying the same thing one should not assume that these are independent observations they're all tight, often tightly coupled by the fact that we're all subject to massive amounts of information and influence from newspapers, radio, magazines and movies but let me ask you a slightly different question because your research in this Area which was so effective was to show that you could impute memories in in people effectively. Maybe you want to give an example or two of that.
1: Well, uh, uh, for the rich false memories, okay. Yeah. Well, the, I'll tell you about the first study we did. I mean, the first thing I knew, I I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted mm. to not just change a little detail, but create an entire memory. So first, I had to decide what what memory should I plant in the minds of these subjects? And as you well know, you know, you're doing research with human subjects. You have to go through the the human subjects committees, the ethics committees. So I knew that my university committee was not going to take too kindly to a proposal to, I'm going to make people (laughs) believe that their father raped them (laughs) in a satanic ritual. So I needed some kind of analog. What was it going to be? Took Couple of years actually of chewing on this with grad students and whoever else I could Interesting. to come up with the idea. Um, let's something that would be at least mildly traumatic if it had actually happened. And that's when we decided we're going to plant a false memory that when you were five or six years old, you were lost in a shopping mall with certain family members there. You know, you were lost for an extended time. You were rescued by an elderly person, reunited with a family, and that's that's how we're going to do it. <laughs> and the way we did it, well, if I were going to do this to you, I would say, Lawrence, um, you know, I had a conversation with your your mother about your childhood. I I just uh, spoke to her um, when she was in Palm Springs, and she 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 told me some things that happened to you when you were about five or six years old. Not, I want to ask you about those things. If you don't remember what she told us about, just say, but if you do remember, let's hear what you remember. Then I'd present you with three true memories, Mm -hmm. things that your mother really Uh. told me did happen to you, and then a completely made-up experience about how you were lost in a mall or if you grew up where there were no malls, then you were lost in a Sears department store or JCPenney's or wherever, something big public place. Um, By the time we were done with three suggestive interviews, we we had a quarter of these ordinary adults fall sway to the suggestion and remember all are part of this made-up experience. So that was my first clue that you could get people to develop these very—what we now call rich false memories. The study got criticized even before—oh, my God. Even (laughs) before— we published it. I presented it at a professional meeting. It got a little publicity. Uh-huh, yeah. And the, um, the, the the critic, the, the therapist could see where we were going yeah. with this. And they started to attack it. They, they said, wait a minute, getting lost is so common. Uh-huh. At least show us you can plan a false memory for something that would be more unusual, uh-huh. more upsetting, more bizarre, if it had happened. So other scientists came along and we too, contributed to this growing literature planning a false memory that uh when you were a kid you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard when you were a kid you were attacked by a vicious animal when you were a kid you witnessed somebody being demonically possessed um that's when i looked into the exorcist <laughs> oh, and the impact it had uh, when you were an, a, a canadian study when you were um a teenager, you committed a crime, and it was serious enough. The police actually came to investigate. All of these have been done now and published in top peer review journals, and uh, show that it is possible to take ordinary people and infect them with the seed. And out of this, how rich
0: susceptible we really are grows. to to not just peer pressure, to, but to, to 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 suggestion. Right now. The attacks originally were the therapists were attacking you because they didn't. They were worried that their own imposition of false memories was now going to be uh, subject to uh, uh, skepticism at the very least. But was there attacks? This is a real question about the ethics of. I mean, is it ethical to impute wrong, you know, false memories into people? Did anyone ever in the on the academic review boards or or in the press say? You know, it's as a scientist, are is is it fair for you to to put false memories in people? The
1: the issue has come up. Um, uh, other investigators and occasionally mm-hmm. I've joined them in this effort to do something similar with children, with young children. Mm-hmm. You got your hand caught in a mouse trap. Yeah. You had to go to the hospital to get yeah. it removed. Three to six yeah. year olds will adopt this false memory Sh- and sure. run with it and so there there was a group that tried to say you know that all false memory work with children should be banned uh-huh. um that got beaten back but yeah i I've, I've had questions. and i in talks that i give about this people ask me well what what happens when the experiment's over what yeah. where are these uh, people and i talk about debriefing and what kinds of reactions um I, For what it's worth, we don't have any adverse uh, incidents that that I know of. We don't um, see our subjects again. Like, you might wonder a month later, Mm. do they still maybe Mm. think they were lost? Uh, We don't see them, and we're not allowed to see them.
0: Oh, you're you're not allowed. You can't follow up.
1: Well, now we have a proposal right Mm now. Um, One of my former grad students is the the lead uh, Mm -hmm. investigator in in this joint Mm -hmm. project to... Build into the protocol a, a, a follow-up to find out, you know, yeah, it'd what's left. Yeah, be fascinating to me. What, what's left.
0: Has it ever—I mean, did it ever personally worry you about um, that you that you could do this or that you were doing it? I'm just wondering. I mean—
1: um, but- well there are a few times in my life when I've been personally worried. I mean we we
0: we'll get to some of those cuz I I'm, No I'm using not those a, no okay. about the science oh, okay.
1: um, so um, when for example in, in the misinformation days when I could distort people's yeah. memories for the, and I would get reprint requests from Russia Oh, you know, during the Cold War, I'm, I'm thinking, do I want to feel, do I want to teach them how to <laughs> how to do this? And but I would fulfill the reprint request, of course. With so the idea that knowledge
0: is knowledge, and no, exactly, yeah, exactly. We can't, we can't censor it.
1: I would feel terrible if um, somehow I played some significant role in getting a guilty person an acquittal, Mm -hmm. and that guilty person goes out and commits some horrendous crime Mm -hmm. on somebody else. Uh, Mm. So far, that hasn't Mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. Even in in In, Ted Bundy... It could have happened, except for the fact that when I was involved in the very first Bundy trial, 1976, I think it was, he was accused of aggravated kidnapping in, in Utah. He was mm-hmm. a first-year law student. We didn't know he was the Ted Bundy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we didn't know.
0: Yeah, he was just a person who could have been innocent.
1: Well, the Ted Bundy, uh, uh, we would learn later yeah. who he was. But he was just Ted, a first-year law student. Mm-hmm who drove a Volkswagen and was uh, accused Mm. of, and there were some questions about the identification. Yeah, yeah, there were real questions. I did testify in that trial. It was a a bench trial, so the judge made the decision to convict Bundy anyhow. So Bundy is then shipped off to Colorado to stand trial for a a suspected murder Mm -hmm. that he... Possibly committed in Colorado, uh, but I didn't have to worry. At the, least in that case, yes, because but, he'd been convicted. Because he'd been convicted.
0: Yeah, but but uh, again, for people who aren't as familiar, the point is that that eyewitness. Um, well, why don't you talk about eyewitness testimony and how it's abu- sometimes abused by this system, and how at other times it's also fallible? I think it's really important for people to realize because most people, I think, many people still today think that. When if you are in a court case and someone says, I saw that, that that, that's unimpeachable.
1: Well, no, it's not. And and, I mean, even even a few years ago when I when I gave a TED talk, I had to think about, well, which case do I want to talk about? I Mm -hmm. felt I should talk about one of them. And I talked about the case of Steve Titus. Mm -hmm. Titus was a restaurant manager. He was, you know, engaged. He was uh, a love of his life. Long story short, he gets accused of committing a rape. Um, he he can't believe this is happening, and he ends up getting convicted yeah he he ends up, and his life is destroyed. Uh, it was only because of a Seattle Times journalist who investigated that and found the real rapist.
0: That's why we need double blind experiments in science because it's really easy to misinterpret the results of an experiment in a, in a drug study, in all sorts of studies. And in the real world, if we don't follow those procedures, it's really easy to affect the results of an experiment just by how you perform it rather than what actually happened. And, and when it comes to someone's life, we've ha- we got to be pretty careful. And I think it's so important to have learned what you, you those things through your work. So maybe just walk people through a little bit, maybe in that case or another case, of how eyewitness testimony how the experiment can be done wrong. If it's a scientific experiment, how it's done wrong by the police or the court system in a few cases.
1: Well, one one thing that happened in the Bundy case is when, when the victim, and she really was a rape victim, mm-hmm. when she first uh, attempts to identify, she, she points to... Uh, to Titus and says, you know, this one's the closest. She's not very confident. Mm -mm. But by the time she gets to trial, absolutely sure that's him. What happened in between? What made her so confident? Well, there's a very good chance that it was the police officer who had an agenda, who believed it was Titus, who communicated and possibly maybe even fudged some information. There were suspicions about that. Uh, and how he may have altered a, a license plate and so on, fed her information that inflated her confidence. So now, when she goes to the trial and says, "That's him," I'm absolutely positive. That's compelling, and the jury had no trouble convicting him. Uh, I didn't testify in the in the criminal trial. Um, it, it, they decided that they didn't need to have a memory expert because they had an alibi, which was a phone record. Uh-huh. Um, and it turns out that they were unprepared for the fact that the prosecution just moved the time of the rape. Yeah, so absolutely. it fit with the you know, the phone yeah. record, and he didn't have that as an alibi anymore. But it that that be that as it may, it's an example of how when the police or the person conducting the investigation, doing the investigation has an idea, has an agenda, has a hypothesis, they can even inadvertently communicate that and contaminate the witness, artificially increase their confidence, feed them details, even unwittingly. Uh, And so I and others, you know, have tried to make proposals to, how can we minimize the chances of this happening? And you hit on one with blind testing.
0: Well, you know, I think the thing is that it happens in science, it happens in physics all the time. It's, as Fox Mulder said in the X-Files, we want to believe. If you're a scientist and Mm -hmm. you have a hypothesis... And you perform an experiment and it agrees with the hypothesis. It's very tempting to believe you're right. And it was Richard Feynman who who said it most eloquently in science, we should try not just to prove ourselves right, we should try mm-hmm. equally hard to prove ourselves wrong. And I think it's very tempting in the legal system to say, well, this seems to work. My hypothesis works. Let's just run with it instead of trying to find all the reasons you're wrong, because of course you've got a lot of cases and you've, you know, you've got people's lives on the line and and um, and and that's the real danger, it seems to me, is that we don't try to prove ourselves wrong in at least in that aspect. That prosecutors don't naturally try and prove themselves wrong by inclination. None of us want to prove ourselves wrong. Mm-hmm. That's part of the training of being a scientist, in some sense, to overcome that natural tendency to want to believe. I don't think people realize sometimes, for example, in lineups, and I learned from from reading some of your stuff of the remarkable things that are done in lineups in order to to, to get someone to point to the person. That the police want to be the suspect. Maybe you give a few examples. I don't want to impugn the police all the time, but 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 I I think it's important to realize these things actually happen.
1: Uh, well, there, I mean, they they can go from minor to. Uh, I I worked on one case, for example, where a, a six pack, six mm-hmm. photographs, is shown to an eyewitness. Mm-hmm. He says, "I really don't." Uh, identify the the perpetrator. And the officer said, I saw your eyes drifting down to number six. Take a look at number six. So they can do things. Well, that yeah. happened in this actual case. Um, and they can do even really extreme things. I mean, th- there was one case where the guy was robbed. You said the robber was black, goes to a lineup. There's only one black and, you know, four or five whites <laughs> in the lineup. And You know, when the the sheriff is asked, why'd you put together that particular lineup? He said, well, we have a small town here, very few blacks. He felt he should have a lineup that's representative of the town. Um, So, yeah, bad things can happen. But I think now, you know, through cooperations with law enforcement, lawyers, psychologists, and so on, they're learning best practices.
0: By doing what one needs to do as a scientist, which is to point out uncertainties, You've been attacked and severely attacked, right? I mean, your own, in some ways, career and life has been has been affected by that. And, and I, I think it's important to point out how, in an effort to just at least promote the notion of that we have to be responsible, you've you've had to deal with real repercussions of that that affected your life. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit if you don't mind. No,
1: I don't mind. But but when it it, when I was the eyewitness lady and yeah. I was looking at uh, c- crimes that really did happen, yeah. victims that really were victims, yeah. maybe there's a mistaken memory, mistaken identification. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a few prosecutors were irritated uh, because it was mostly the defense in criminal cases that wanted to introduce this kind of information into the case, the scientific information. And every now and then a prosecutor might say something a little nasty. But for the most part, the intellectual discussion amongst the professionals and the debates and Mm -hmm. so on were pretty healthy. And, And so, for example, uh, you know, I had one healthy debate about the nature of memory with a, a Johns Hopkins professor. And, uh, you know, after we duke it out in the pages mm-hmm. of the journal, he he would ask me for a letter of recommendation when he was <laughs> being considered for another job or a promotion. It was that kind of fairly well, healthy. That's when healthy. it got ugly is mm-hmm. when I moved into the world of repressed memory and and, and started to question the therapist's. Some therapists and what they were doing, what they were doing to their patients, and how they may be contributing to the development of these traumatic false memories.
0: And you, you were sued. You were sued, and you've been. And, and, and yes,
1: uh, I was.
0: And and had to go through. And and your university too. No, or
1: well, what what happened? Uh, so I, I now I was involved in a lot of these repressed memory cases, sure. and. Uh, A psychiatrist, uh, I'd heard this psychiatrist was, uh, you know, giving presentations about a case history of his. Uh, A a woman who had recovered memories of her mother molesting her when she was five and six years old. Mm -hmm. And this psychiatrist had basically blessed the abuse story back then Mm -hmm. when when the now woman was a child. The mother lost custody and visitation of her little six-year-old daughter. Uh, Daughter went to the biological father and stepmother. Uh, And now, years later, the psychiatrist is interviewing the now woman. And right there on tape, she supposedly recovers her repressed memory of this abuse. So this is now being used as the new proof of repressed memory. I think this is the fishiest story I've ever heard. But it's all anonymized because when he mm. writes the article, it's Jane Doe, John mm. Doe, Mom's mm. Town, Dad's mm. Town. Mm-hmm. Maybe there were 280 million people in America at that time. How am I going to find the Doe family mm. and uh, to get to the bottom of this? Um, and one summer, I did. Wow. And yeah, I did. I, and I once I found the name of of cracked the identity, then I could get into the divorce file. And once I got into the divorce file, then I found evidence that convinced me that this mother was innocent. Um, But before I even wrote anything about the case, the the daughter complained to my former university, one of your faculties looking into my life, I'm upset. And with 15 minutes notice, they came to my office and seized my files. So now I was under investigation. But for what? for what? I mean, I I'd worked on so many cases. This yeah. one I just happened to be working on for free and, yeah. and you know, I wasn't retained yeah. or, or brought in by a lawyer, but that I felt there there was an injustice out uh, there. Uh-huh. And uh, by the way, I had gone to the city to meet the mother eventually when once we found her. Mm-hmm. And they put me under investigation for. Eventually, well, when you you know you were an academic so many years, you know, when can they come and seize your files? Maybe if if you're accused of faking data, maybe they can come and take your books or whatever. Wasn't that plagiarism? Maybe it wasn't. Nothing was written yet. It became an investigation of did I violate human subjects regulations by not getting permission when I went and interviewed that mother <laughs> whom I thought was falsely accused. Yes. And so that be- became the investigation. I was gagged during this investigation. It lasted almost two years. And when I was finally exonerated of any wrongdoing, I, you know, I was pretty upset yeah, by well, the I treatment that, yeah. and... Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the money I had to spend on an attorney mm. to yeah. defend help defend me. but um, And uh, nine months later, I was still upset. And that's when I was offered this fabulous job by University of California, Irvine. And I ended up taking the job. Also, right at that time, I published the expose. Oh, and okay. I, she, uh, she was still Jane Doe, uh-huh. John Doe, mom's town, yeah. dad's town. But it was then that she said, I know that was me. And this is libel, slander. Right. I'm upset, and she sued.
0: Well, but you know, but it turned. Well, I've often found that sometimes when you're forced to make a change by something that seems awful, in the end, it 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 can be very beneficial. In your case, it was. I you, you told me that the moving to California and a, a, a new position just changed a lot. For, for
1: well, it did. I mean, I I you know, I'm, I moved in my late fifties. I I didn't I really want to leave particularly. But once I got to this new university that, you know, embraced me and and, uh, gave me a title of Mm. distinguished professor and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up my lab and and treated me uh, with the respect that I had been so longing for Mm -hmm. in the the previous two years. Sure. And then wonderful colleagues, so it's been a great move, and I'm glad, and even if it was born out of tragedy.
0: How has your perception of yourself changed by your recognition of the the fallible nature of memory? How has it changed the way you view yourself? Has it changed it at all? Have you personalized that?
1: Once I realized that I could plant really rich, big, false memories, uh, and it would affect people's behaviors. I could make people believe they got sick eating strawberry ice cream and they're not as interested in eating it anymore and they don't eat as much of it, for example. I could make them uh, have a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food like asparagus and they want to eat it more. I could make them have a false memory they got sick drinking a vodka drink as a teenager and they're not as interested in a vodka drink. So, So should we... How should we use this mind technology that we're capable of? Should we use it to make people feel happier or Mm. or healthier? And I got criticized again. There she goes, you Mm. know. Actually, the criticism came when I said um, therapists maybe can't do that. They're not supposed to use deception, even Mm. if they think it's in your best interest. But nothing to stop a parent from (laughs) doing this with their, you know, overweight, teenager or obese yeah. child or whatever, plan a little false memory, make yes. them not eat so much pizza. Um, then the critics started saying, you know, she's advocating that that parents lie to yeah. their kids. <laughs> well, and and uh, my first reaction was, you know, hello, Santa Claus. But yeah. But, yeah. But,
0: or the but, whole, and, av- I mean, that's what av- modern advertising <laughs> it, it, yeah. in, in our society is, is trying to get people to... Change the behavior for one reason or another using whatever techniques. But 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 using
1: deception makes people nervous. It doesn't make me so nervous. Interesting. And 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 maybe it's because I know that we have all these bits of fiction in there already. What's a little more if you Mm. can prevent someone from getting diabetes and a shortened lifespan and and all the things that go along with obesity? I mean, what's a little bit of fiction? Well, our memory. lives
0: are full of fiction. We create our own fictions in some sense, well, I guess.
1: So I know that, and it doesn't bother me so Well,
0: much. I find it myself. I create fictions to, in order to do things. I say, oh, you know, I know, if I want to motivate myself to do something, I'll build it up in my mind so that, you know, if it's exercise or something else. And in order, to, we all, I think, as, I don't know, Lewis Carroll said, we leave six impossible things before breakfast mm-hmm. just to get up in the morning and be motivated to go to work or do whatever we're going to do. And you, know, you just say, I heard a rumor that you like this. I just saw a movie about that. So it comes to my mind, huh. but, uh, but with great, but on the other hand, with another movie thought with great power comes great responsibility mm-hmm. as we learn. I mean, this is an issue for the future because we are becoming presumably more, especially with the massive amount of information that's available now on the internet at Google or or anything else. We are learning what people want and how people change their behavior and are you concerned that 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 with that great power comes too much responsibility in the sense that we can effectively cause people to do whatever we want them to?
1: Uh, well, maybe you can. When I learned about deep fakes recently, yeah. I thought, "Whoa." Yeah. This is going to be a problem. Yeah, um, because I used to, you know, I used to say that the the take-home lesson from my work is just cuz somebody tells you that th- something with something with a lot of confidence and detail and emotion uh-huh. doesn't mean it really happened. Go out and get independent corroboration. When people say, "Well, what would that be?" Well, maybe photographs. Uh-huh. Or maybe a video. Yeah. That could be independent corroboration. But now with the technology for photoshopping and the deep fakes so you can Create a, a situation where it looks like anybody is saying or doing whatever it is you want them to say yeah. or do that they didn't say or do. Uh, where it, it, it's going to be tough.
0: It is going to be tough, but I guess the point uh, is that fortune favors the prepared mind. If we don't realize how ma- if we don't do those studies, if we don't know how malleable we are, then we are automatically mo- more susceptible to to to. Intentional efforts to affect us in 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 either vicious or malicious ways. So ultimately, I guess I kind of feel that, for better or worse, even if the knowledge is dangerous, refusing to explore the knowledge is is more dangerous. At least that's my own view. That's
1: I guess. My, been my view too. See
0: that, but on the other yeah. hand, that's why I always tell people, I'm so happy I do cosmology because <laughs> what I studying the future of the universe has no has no impact on everyone's everyday life. So mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about those. Literally. I mean this in not a completely facetious way. I haven't had to worry about those deep ethical issues of how my research might have a direct mm-hmm. effort. It, it, of course, affects the way we think about ourselves and our place in the universe, and I love that. But, but, but I'm, I'm personally saved from those deep questions that, that you've had to deal mm-hmm. with. As, do you have a good memory, by the way?
1: Well, it's pretty good. But, and, uh, and, but, but I, you know, I, I think I'm just as susceptible to yeah. these. Well,
0: uh, what, Do you remember your first memory?
1: For a long time, I thought my first memory was um, a, a happy day when I went to see the greatest show on earth. Uh. I was, uh, for years, that was my earliest memory. And if you, when uh, we play this game yeah, in yeah. psychology, what is your mm-hmm. earliest mm-hmm. memory and how old were you? And I figured, you know, I figured maybe I was four or f- something like that. That's when mm-hmm. some people have an earliest mm-hmm. memory. Um, but one day I was at a bookshop, all grown up, studying memory, and and there was a book on movies, the history of movies, Mm. and I thought, hmm, I think I'll look up The Greatest Show on Earth and found out that I was eight years old at the time that was released. So that wasn't my earliest memory. (laughs) I don't know what is now because that's the one I hung on to for all these years.
0: Yeah, I've thought, I mean, I have a bunch of early memories, but I don't know, I, I don't know why, but maybe because I'm naturally skeptical, I don't know... I've always wondered whether they were real memories or whether there's something my mother told me about falling in the swimming pool and 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 I've always been suspicious that, that there wasn't really a real memory I have I vividly have it now and um um I vividly remember the first time we met and and when we were we were in an elevator at a at an atheist meeting talking about about uh a uh, talk you gave do you remember that
1: no I remember the one where you were giving a talk at a skeptics meeting I mean
0: okay no I was trying I <laughs> oh. I was trying to impute a memory oh, really? I wanted oh, to see okay. if I
1: could. <laughs> actually uh, yeah I, 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 you you could have got me going on that I was
0: gonna uh, yeah, I, I just could've. felt too guilty but I was gonna yeah, try could
1: have you could have gotten me going on that one
0: and in terms of memory can you close your eyes for a second just a second close my eyes what color are my eyes
1: uh I mean I don't know I I'd guess Brown, but okay, that's, that's
0: good. good. I wouldn't be able to answer that either. Okay. The green, but it's okay. I wanted oh. to see if, but yeah, I'm not good at observing. Oh, I'm colorblind, which are, which I suppose gives me a. Oh really? Re- re-
1: what kind of colorblind?
0: Well, sort of a bl- blue green and red red green. Uh, oh. It's a mixture of those two. And I, you know, and
1: what happens at a stoplight?
0: Uh, well, the one on the top, the one on the bottom. No, <laughs> okay. I can often I can often tell the difference, but not always. Surprisingly, oh. and, and uh I think it's one of the reasons, by the way why I also got in as a theoretical physicist rather than an observational physicist. And rather than a biologist, I mean, because, you know, plants and trees, they were sort of being able to distinguish flora and fauna it was, became difficult for me. And I think um, that's one of the reasons why I perhaps moved towards the physical sciences rather than the biological sciences. My mother wanted me to be a doctor, but there were many reasons, actually. Of course. Actually. Of course. And she took a long time to, not, to get over that. By tell you can implant memory, you can implant testimony in people the same way you can implant memories. I, I assume. And so, does does the work you've done have has anyone explored its impact on interrogations and as well as uh, as well, well as just court cases?
1: Well, the closest we've come is I I, I have a collaborator who is uh, has a sleep lab mm-hmm. at, at Michigan State University. We've published a few papers together with some of my uh, graduate students on sleep deprivation. You mm. keep people up all night or you allow them to sleep and then put them through some of these false memory tasks or false confession type situations. Mm-hmm. And, and we find that there are conditions, sleep deprivations can, under certain conditions, make you more susceptible and more likely many more times more likely to confess to a wrongdoing that you didn't do since those interrogation tech the, the so-called torture techniques mm-hmm. often involve this massive so, yeah. sleep deprivation it doesn't seem like it's a very good idea
0: has that but it, uh, absolutely but has that scientific work a- a- at all flowed into the popular consciousness or or uh, or into the uh, that the, the the debate nowadays about about the usefulness of those kind of what i would call torture
1: well, there are people. There are some people who say it works, and say they have a study, and some people who say I, there is. I, oh, no- there
0: are some people. I, I kind of thought there was convincing evidence that, that 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 you don't get much more information, and that the information you get is 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 uh, dubious when you when because people will conf- not only just to avoid the pain they'll confess anything, but under conditions as you say they can be convinced that they are that they did do something.
1: Right. Well, uh, yes. Um, and that's usually with some suggestion that they can be convinced. But yeah. no, the people who want who want to promote the the continued use of these aggressive methods claim they have some evidence. I I haven't seen it.
0: Yeah, I I don't know of any. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I didn't know if you knew of any evidence because I've. In my own lay person's looking at this, I've never seen any evidence. Quite the on the whole, I've seen the opposite, which makes me skeptical and dubious. So even if aside from the moral and ethical issues of whether you have a right to torture people, there's the question of the of the utility of it. And and if, if so, even if you don't have a ethical ethical and moral que- issue, you should have a question about whether it really works. Ultimately, that's what matters. Does it work? I mean, be, that's the, one of the things that matter. And then the, the next question, the, yes. and then the question is, do you have a right to do it and is and is ethical to do it? And, and we can have our uh, own views on that. Another aspect of the modern implication, what about modern technology, like smartphones and the impact on memory? I know there's an impact on the way young people, whether they can read long things. I mean, longer than a tweet now, uh, read chapters of books or books even. That's changed by the fact that most people read on their cell phones short, concise either 200 you know uh, letter combinations or something more what about the fact that we can we don't have to remember facts or details or even stories we can access it we all have in our pocket now a thing that allows us to access a world of information and misinformation albeit D- has anyone sort of looked at somebody, the impact on that study of, yes, on memory?
1: Somebody did a study. Uh, I can't even tell you the names, but it's like floating around my mm. a, a few years ago, not that many years ago. That showed that if you could, if you know you can look it up, you're less likely to yeah. remember it. And but I mean, the way as a memory person, the thing I most notice is uh, you know I don't know people's phone numbers anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because they it's just hit the button sure. or hit their face with their. Picture. Yeah, uh-huh. am I, am <laughs> I mean, I, yeah,
0: exactly. My, I was just thinking. I didn't know my. I can't remember my stepdaughter's. I'm good with numbers, but <laughs> I have to think a lot about the, exactly. You never do that. It's always and and when you're asked, even for your own telephone numbers, it's really kind of sometimes for a lot of people I have a hard time knowing what their own number are. And it'll be interesting to see how that how. But of course, the problem is that that the fact that we know we in principle have a reliable source is always a problem because the internet isn't a reliable source.
1: No, it's not. And and, and, and we're even influenced by fake news, even when we
0: know it's fake. Even when we know it's fake. Even when
1: we know it's fake.
0: And I think that's a real concern. That's one of the reasons, by the way, as a scientist, that's why I spend so much time trying to talk about skepticism and the technique. Because the whole success of science, it seems to me, is built around trying to overcome our natural tendencies to recognize how susceptible you are to incorrect information. And, the, and science is nothing other than a process that works to weed out the wrong stuff. And that's why it's useful in society, because, because it's so non-intuitive and yet so necessary if we, want, if we want to separate the wheat from the chaff. And for me, that's the whole reason why I think the science is relevant as a process to society and why I've sort of gotten a lot of involved in that you've now had this great experience with the legal system. Eyewitness testimony is an, an issue. I think you've talked about um, changing what the legal oath-swearing uh, uh, t- testimony uh, in courts and how we might change that. What can we do to improve the legal system based on what we know? Um, of memory and and sworn testimony. And, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's no magic bullet, but I'm sure you've also thought about, about uh, ways to improve that. Well,
1: okay. I mean, there's... Th- There are are so many little specific things that can be done and that have been advocated by people in my field. The blind testing... Is one of them, that the person who's conducting the investigation, let's say the lineup uh, where somebody's trying to identify a potential Mm. perpetrator, shouldn't know who the suspect is. And the reason it's so important to have that person be blind to who the suspect is, is because you don't want them inadvertently cueing the Mm. witness and and you don't want them giving feedback, which is going to artificially inflate the confidence. So that's one, that's probably the number one recommendation as far as lineups are concern. But there are others there too, instructing the witness that the perpetrator may or may not be in the lineup. It's just as important to exonerate the innocent as find Mm. the guilty person. Mm. You want to take the pressure off of people to pick someone. Then there are uh, discussions of who should be in the lineup with the uh, the suspect. Mm -hmm. What should the others look like? And you might think, well, they should look sort of similar, but it's not so simple. You have to take into account the description that the person gave. yeah, so you don't just make sure that they're all white males with mm-hmm. dark hair and roughly yeah. the same height. But if the description said, um, you know, a mole on one cheek or something or yeah. uh, a straggly beard or something yeah. like that, then you have to make yeah. sure that that is yeah. taken into account in putting together that test. Then, okay, at the time of the trial, You've got jurors out there who are coming in to participate, and they've got beliefs about memory that are wrong. Mm -hmm. They've got beliefs that are either unsupported by science or even contradicted. So how are we going to educate them? And— Uh, many people have suggested, most recently the National Academy of Sciences, that we need more education of these jurors, either through jury instructions that a judge can deliver or through expert testimony that an expert witness can deliver so that these jurors get educated and they they are making their verdicts based Mm -hmm. on. Accurate scientific information. Those are just a few of of many things that. Sure.
0: Well, they're all they're all so important. What about not just educating jurors? How educated are the prosecutors, the lawyers, and the judges?
1: Well, that's an, you know that's another thing. I mean, you know, lawyers and prosecutors and defense attorneys and and the who then go on to become judges. Some of whom, some of them, um, you know, they've got a lot of things they got to learn. Yeah. And so they. Memory is just one of them. Yeah, exactly, and, uh, and it
0: becomes much. Well, that's an interesting case. I've, I've, we've had some debates about ultimately whether AI would be a much better, uh, and it'll happen, I'm sure, in the legal system where people will be replaced by AI because they have access to so much more information than mere humans do in terms of being able to. Accept, because the 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 requirement, the knowledge, the the technical issues that are being debated. There was an article in the New York Times a while ago about how, in certain cases, the technical questions become so sophisticated, it's hard, hard for the jury, it's hard for the lawyers, it's hard for the judges, and so some as as society evolves, we're going to have to consider that in the legal system. I think.
1: Uh, absolutely. Plus,
0: by the way, I was thinking about your Q thing when you talked about the the, the lineups. I, I, a great example, it seems to me, to use is all the examples of the animals who could count or who knew how to answer questions, and the owners didn't realize that they were cueing the animals. Oh. It's re- these cues are very subtle, and you can and and you can easily not be aware of them, even if you're if, if even if you're trying to do something fairly. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a challenge, and. Uh, and uh, that we that we all have to recognize, and uh, and I think society's got to evolve. But ultimately, as you say, knowledge is the at least is one way to help. Exactly, it's not, may not be the only way. Um, the, in terms of the outrage to what to the things we're learning, and there is outrage about a number of these things. That often tells us about ourselves. What do you? How do you think it reflects? What does it say about ourselves that we're we're outraged to learn that? That we are not reliable, I guess.
1: <sighs> what it's taught me, well, actually, this and another bit of work that I haven't told you about, um, has taught me how much people cherish their memories. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to give them up, even when they're going to be harmful. Mm-mm. And I, I saw that m- so clearly. So, so I am, I am challenging their memories and that makes people very uncomfortable but where i really saw it clearly is uh when i collaborated on a study of their their drugs their clinical trials uh testing drugs that you could take after a trauma that would weaken your memory and minimize your chances of getting post-traumatic stress disorder um now we're not doing those clinical mm-hmm. trials other people who are in a position to do that kind of work are, are doing that but we enter this debate by just asking people let's say you were a victim of a horrible crime somebody bashed you in a park and robbed you you know mm-hmm. you go to the emergency room and the doctor says we got this drug it'll weaken your memory for this it'll reduce your chances of getting post traumatic stress disorder do you want the drug and to my shock like 80% of people said no. I don't want that drug. Um you, you, we changed the scenario yeah. a little. They still don't want the drug. I mean and th- and they ha- they have different reasons. I, I don't I don't know what the side effects will be, what other memories are going to go. Yeah. Uh, I might want these m- memories. Yeah. Even when we tell them how bad ptsd is for people they yeah. still don't want the drug so why and because they want they're afraid of not, not of letting go of those memories
0: uh, yeah i think we identify our memories as i said with, what, who we are what we are i mean what are we in some sense except the sum total of our memories for many people um yeah it's it must be terrifying and it's, but
1: uh, I, you know, I did, my my one of my collaborators, she said, I wouldn't take it. And I said, I would, you know, but yeah. I want to, you know, I want to die of an overdose of morphine. I, <laughs> I just don't want to feel the pain. Yeah. But, well, I, it's but, in, I, but I'm in the minority.
0: Apparently. It's interesting. Uh, uh, that's that. I was surprised that people will be willing to avoid something really, won't be willing to avoid something really bad. By by doing by some minor intervention. That's that's well
1: weakening their memory is not something that sounds appealing
0: to people. Well, speaking of not appealing, the last thing I want to go to, and I think it would be we have to. It's the elephant in the room. Is how this relates to current things where there is a lot of emotion attached. But I think it's important that we address some of the current issues. For example, um, the uh, let me bring up the Kavanaugh hearings, and, and 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 and. and that there's an example of that people feel very strongly one way or another about memories in in the case of a person who clearly was earnest or at least one person who was earnestly had memories that that may or may not have happened and no and people fall and my even by bringing it up people i'm sure are going to be upset with me bringing it up at the possibility that it might have happened other people will be upset at the at, at the possibility that it did but but what uh, let's talk about that because I think we 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 have to try and relate it to the modern times a little bit.
1: Well, okay. I mean, I, since I uh, soaked myself with that uh, testimony at the mm-hmm. time, and 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 here I am, uh, somebody who has been questioning thirty and forty year old memories for the last mm-hmm. two or three decades. And saying, you you need to know so much more. You can't just mm. use the the way the person tells the story and decide mm. it must be true. That's what the rest of the world is doing. yeah. and 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 I had to, you know, I felt like a, you know, sort of fish out of water be, dealing with a, a whole society that just wanted to uncritically accept the story because okay. it because it's, she was so appealing uh, yeah. and because she was, Confident, and because she was detailed, and because she was emotional, and not ask, you know, how exactly did that memory come to be? But and uh, it's not
0: and it's not popular.
1: And and you know, the Kavanaugh people tried to get more information about how the memory came to be, but Mm -hmm. were were thwarted. Uh, I mean, and, and of course, when they want to see the rest of the therapy records and find mm. out, is that what mm. did it? It's it, it's done it in so many hundreds of other cases. Well,
0: that for me, that was a signal that it, that it came out in therapy. I must have get it because of probably reading so many things. I'm always suspicious when things come out after the fact, well after the fact in therapy. But maybe that's just a bias on my part. Well,
1: but we, you know, we didn't we didn't learn all there was to mm. learn to to to. Make a more informed decision about uh, about well, what really happened.
0: Let, let's hit another hot button issue that's going to impact people. Because I think you wrote an op ed you were just uh, years ago about it. But recently, um, you know, Woody Allen has become a name who's be who's again. You mentioned the name, people fall on one side or another. Many years after the fact, w- which surprises me, after this was adjudicated and and it's recently come up in a in a context and it's all based on a childhood memory. Uh, I don't know what your op-ed was about it, so I'd like to hear what your context was in in in, in that case.
1: Well, that that you know that was written some time ago, yeah. when when you know we, we, there, there's there's a seven year old. Mm. Uh, Daughter, who's Mm. in part of a ugly, messy separation, custody, whatever situation, who makes an accusation that's thoroughly investigated by, I think, the Yale investigators, Mm. and and uh, no finding uh, of any any abuse. Uh, But what what I've noticed recently now is the the seven year old who's now grown up says, hey people didn't believe me before. Will you believe me now? And, uh, she's, she's come forward in the midst of the, of me too saying, won't you believe me now? Uh, you know, I was reading the LA Times, my hometown mm-hmm. newspaper, uh, just last year and a therapist, uh, wrote a letter, um, to the papers saying as a therapist, uh, I believe her memories are real cuz they have a ring of authenticity about them and I'm thinking to myself what is ringing for this therapist y- 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 who's never met the the, the, the child uh-huh. or the adult uh, uh-huh. woman um she, probably what's ringing is that she looks emotional and detailed and, and, when she tells the story and
0: coherent and cogent and well spoken
1: right yeah. but but um
0: but again, I mean, you know, yeah, this is a well. Anyway, so there's a lot of factors in that case that are, that are. But I'm I'm surprised how many people. Well, I guess I'm not surprised how many people make a judgment a priori because they feel. Always feel in some sense. Why would someone say this if it wasn't right? If it wasn't true? Right. And and it's, and yet there are many examples of people as you, throughout your history of your research that show that exactly the opposite is the case. It's not malicious intent. It's just the way our mind works, and we have to be aware of that. I think, as we think about who, especially in times of, of you know where people are easily easily accused on on and and condemned on the internet or anywhere else or in, or in le- or in the legal profession as you've as you've worked out. Let me ask you one last question because recently I, I wonder about this. Um, and depending upon when we broadcast this, it'll be a recent. But but Joe Biden, who loves to hug people. Um, has been in the news, and uh, and I'm wondering: Do you think it's possible that people can have had an experience w- with Joe Biden that wasn't uncomfortable, but then learn that when other people are uncomfortable and they reflect upon it, they remember that they were uncomfortable if they weren't? Do you think that kind of thing can happen or not? Uh, or-
1: well, uh, definitely, there there's uh, there's a well, going back to the earlier cases that we were talking about where these women are going into therapy and with maybe depression or something mm. coming out, believing their parents mm. molested them in satanic rituals. Um, or, or some of it, some of it is, well, maybe not the satanic ritual stuff, but mm. the, the some a little bit more pallid mm. and an experience yeah. that it's a—, a Something ambiguous happens. This is according mm. to the trauma myth book, um, Susan Clancy's mm. book that was that we I reviewed yeah. for Science mm. magazine or mm-hmm. The Wall Street Journal or someplace I forget where now. but in any event that that there is a reinterpretation into in today's light. maybe that ambiguous mm. thing that you know made me was, seemed a little strange. It's now labeled as I'm a victim of sexual abuse, mm. and that's what gets you upset. And 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 who knows with Biden? I mean, I I don't know what we are to think when when he's presumably you know had hugged and kissed and whatever millions of people in the mm. course of his political career, and a few are now now today in 2018, 19, saying, you know, when he did it to me, I was uncomfortable. What are we supposed to do with, with that's
0: that? A, uh, well, that's maybe a good question to almost leave this with. I think it's, these are difficult questions and, 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 uh, but ultimately I think for me, the moral of what, of what, uh, what I get out of our discussion and your work is that, is that the only way to deal with these difficult questions is to, is to be informed of, 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 of who we are and what we are as human beings. And, 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 and that's why I, I've so applaud your life's work because that effort to inform us of what the real world is, whether we like it or not. And that's the whole point I've always said as a scientist, the world is the way it is, whether we like it or not. We need to understand that if we are to a better deal with the drama, challenge, good and bad of being a human being. And I want to thank you for helping all of us, hopefully, live better lives. So thank you you very much.
1: You said it so well, I'm going to plagiarize you. Okay, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Anytime. Okay, thanks again. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure. pleasure. Take care.
1: The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, Amelia Huggins, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amison. Edited by Evan Diamond. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects and music by rickulous to see the full video of this podcast as well as other bonus content visit us at patreon.com/originspodcast